Welcome to the Leading Real Change podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jacqueline Kerr, an expert in workplace culture change. From my unique background in behavior science, public health, and community advocacy, I help corporate leaders with evidence-based individual team and organizational change to create thriving workplace cultures for all. In the Leading Real Change podcast, I interview dedicated and passionate change makers about their careers, how they lead change, and what leaders can do today to make a difference, to build healthy, inclusive workplace cultures for all. I'm excited to share these examples of real workplace change with you. You'll learn about effective strategies that are working and how to overcome real barriers to change that challenge us every day. I hope you'll feel inspired and more confident to keep leading change in your workplace. Please share this podcast with other HR, DEI or ERG leaders who you know are working hard but are struggling to have an impact and need more support to effectively create a thriving workplace culture for all today. This is Aaron Tabaco, and I am the Director of Staff Experience at the University of California, San Francisco Department of Medicine. Great. Thank you so much for being here today. So tell us a little bit more about that department, your role in that department, the workforce you work with, and then your overall mission as well. And then we'll get into some of the activities you've done to prevent burnout and keep your workforce engaged. And obviously, as your role is to provide the best experience for them. I appreciate that. That's a very kind inquiry, and hopefully we'll be able to share some good things today. So let's see. The Department of Medicine, so obviously this is academic medicine. So we have a large, basically three-mission enterprise that involves research, healthcare practice, and education. We are housed within the School of Medicine, and of course the School of Medicine is one of many interdisciplinary healthcare professional schools at UCSF, which is a dedicated health sciences university. Our department is large. So we say Department of Medicine, what we really are meaning is the Department of Internal Medicine specifically. So all of those specialties that relate to internal medicine, cardiology, hematology, oncology, nephrology, all of those sort of core internal healthcare oriented systems are within our purview. And that means that we have a very large department. I think one of the largest units at UCSF with about 3,000 constituents. It's nearly evenly divided between staff, faculty, and our trainees who are our residents and fellows. It's roughly about 1,000 people in each of those categories. Very large enterprise. We also have a number of sort of institute partnerships, some incredible public service organizations such as our Center for Vulnerable Populations, just a number of really unique and wonderful divisions within the department. So 38-ish divisions across three sites that incorporate a hospital run by, in partnership with UCSF, that's San Francisco General Hospital, a really fantastic institution with a long history of public service, the San Francisco VA Medical Center and all of its related health services. So great, strong presence and partnership there. 
and of course, UCSF Health itself at our main Parnassus campus. And so just a really large, robust group of people who are engaged in frontline healthcare and cutting edge research and really a lot of leadership around all of these issues. As you can imagine in the pandemic, our department includes critical care, pulmonology, a number of specialties, infectious diseases that were very much at the front lines of COVID response, not just as clinicians, but as researchers and researchers involved in all of the dimensions of, of health. So whether that's our interfacing with our primary care systems, providing acute care, and very much at the front line of public health. So yeah, that's a bit about our department it's a lot. My goodness, I'm almost getting anxiety thinking about all the moving pieces in there, not to mention the high prevalence of burnout in academia and higher education, plus the extremely high and distressing levels of burnout in our healthcare workers, so much so that we have calls from action from the US Surgeon General to change the systems, not the people, but to change the systems under which we operate. So tell me a little bit more. The reason we ended up wanting to chat today was because you actually had some incredible success during the most stressful years in the last few years. So I'm really excited for you to share that as a story of hope as a story of also what it takes, because really that's what I feel like companies need to hear is not advice from me how to do it, but advice from people who are doing it every day and overcoming the barriers and the struggles. So yes, tell us a little bit more about if there was anything leading up to COVID that's related to why you think you guys did so well with employee engagement during COVID or start there. You tell this story in the best way to help others learn from your experiences. And if, again, that comes from bringing into it your experience, your background, because obviously as leaders, we do need a certain type of leadership to make this happen. So I want to acknowledge your role in creating these systems too. Oh, that's very generous. Thank you. Well, I think, first of all, there are a number of predisposing factors, I think, that set us up for success. One, UCSF at large, but I think in particular, the Department of Medicine has a really strong culture that's very positive and generally very person-centered. Of course, that's paired with the altruism and the focus of healthcare and being people who are interested in human health and healing. I think generally speaking, there was probably a lot heading into the pandemic that we took with us as assets into that very difficult period, regardless of the context of so many of our frontline bedside care providers really being on the line with a lot of hours and a lot of uncertainty and a lot of risk exposure in an uncertain time. But going into things with a strong culture, I think is probably one of the biggest kudos to the department. In terms of me, so this role is a bit of a unicorn in my institution at large. There aren't a lot of units that have the resources that that would be able to fund a full-time director level position 
focusing specifically on staff experience, engagement, culture, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, accessibility, all of those pieces. So that I think was another factor, whether it had been me specifically or another person in the role, I think just having that person there whose eyes are really on the ball all the time and trying to understand what's happening with people um, and then respond to it is a really big benefit to that. And then I guess on a personal level, While my background isn't necessarily required for a position like this in an administrative capacity like this, I am a PhD prepared nurse and spent many years in healthcare practice, research, and education. And I bring to my role a nursing lens and an education lens and a people development lens that's really grounded in nursing practice and values. And for me, coming into something like the beginning of the pandemic, and we're asking questions about, gosh, how do we keep people engaged? How do we keep people productive? How do we know what's even happening? What's important? There are certainly a lot of sort of standard frameworks for that, but my internal mechanisms of being a nurse go to, let's really assess our population. Can we look at this very holistically? If we're going to talk about something like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, most efforts related to engagement and productivity and professional development are pretty high in that pyramid. We're getting towards self-actualization and, and these really high-level pieces, but we were jumping right into a pandemic where it was the base of that pyramid, our physical safety, our psychological safety that were so uncertain for people and through a lot of wrenches into everyday life experience. So, you know, the nurse in me can't not see that and not take an approach that really is grounded at the level of those intersections of our people, their health, and their environments, that overlapping sort of Venn diagram of where do you find nursing? And it's in there. It's in that person health and environment piece. So I think those three different things probably set us up to have a good experience. And maybe the unstated piece, particularly in that first one around culture, is that we just have wonderful people. We really have frontline managers and supervisors who deeply care about the people in their units. We have division chiefs, you know, are uh, the chiefs of medicine in their particular specialties that run these divisions with their administrative partners, their division managers who are just amazing humanitarians and committed communicators. And I think we really were set up to be very resilient and responsive from the beginning, Jacqueline. So I think that really is probably the biggest keys. Okay. And as you said, importantly, communicators. And I think one of the pieces I was just listening to a new book, The Nowhere Office, and it was really describing how HR is going to have to be split out into so many different sections. Maybe recruitment is is very different from onboarding. It's very different from the employee experience that you have separated out. So I thought that was interesting that we could really start to see that there are different phases, there are different needs, there are different skills in all these different parts of creating a human workplace and that it couldn't just sit in one space. So I think that's really important for us to be thinking about because I feel like that I'm hearing about HR officers who are now, for example, agents of change. And I'm thinking, where's their training in that as a change specialist? I know it requires its own style of, of training. 
And I think to another area that seems to be emerging around the future of work is the move from managers as authoritarian to managers as coaches. And I know, again, you had training as an executive coach. So I can imagine that all plays into this too. Yeah, we've really taken a look at what are the constituent pieces of the leadership and the structure and the function that will really dispose us to be successful long term. I think one of the really big realizations we came to early on was that, one, this pandemic experience was going to be prolonged. We knew that. But also that after our initial sort of chaotic upgearing for just responding to all of this, and we calmed down and settled into a bit of a more realistic routine quickly, that we didn't want to lose some of the real positive things that were coming out of us, our experiences operationally and in terms of our relationships with each other, et cetera. I think we really early saw that this opportunity to redo and rethink our workplace from a permanently hybrid position, it was really clear to us that's where we're going to go. And we want to do that really well. So we have been really paying attention to what are the leadership needs? What are the competencies? What are the skills? What are the beliefs and values that will dispose our frontline managers and supervisors and our division chiefs to being able to really thrive with that type of workplace. And you think about healthcare and you don't necessarily think about a distributed workforce with some sort of highly aligned hybrid slash remote model. We think about healthcare as all hands-on all the time. And that's how we certainly thought about it before the pandemic. And to one degree or another, I think we have really left that thinking behind and embraced this new world. So yeah, I think you've hit it on the head there, you know, that there's all these other dimensions of that and the leadership pieces being really central to it. And I suppose too, in some ways, you're painting this picture of sort of academic medicine and medicine with a lot of strengths in place that you have. But I wouldn't say that's necessarily the experience of many people out there in academic medicine. And I was just rereading the National Academy of Medicine suicide prevention call to action, because it's a case study that for me is really important. It came from physician Dr. Lorna Breen, who um, died by suicide during the pandemic because she was afraid that her mental health struggles were going to affect her ability to practice in future. And so we are trying to get government legislation to change that. And that this approach to what we needed to do for our physicians was basically coming in the education very early on in terms of that looking after your mental health was something that needed to be communicated and started at that academic medicine trainee level. And that was clearly something that wasn't necessarily in place. So it really looked at all the different levels at the board level of certifications and all these other things, as well as education. Then obviously the individual colleagues themselves, how they can support each other. So I suppose you're in a situation which is maybe not necessarily representative. So that in itself is intriguing to me. 
But let's really get into what it was that you were measuring and what actions you then took to ensure that there was successful employee engagement. And what were the things that you saw that were the biggest challenges, the biggest causes of burnout? And then how did you not look to provide the band-aids, but actually think about the systems change as well? And maybe you did, maybe you had to provide some band-aids along the way. Yeah, absolutely. And this is certainly, as for anyone listening, right, in their organizations, it really is a work in progress and a grand experiment. I think our scientific minds of our own unique organization are really open to an understanding of experimental models. And so (laughs) there may be a little bit of protective factor in that we're like, sure, let's experiment. Let's try it. Let's see what happens. And that's the right mindset. We have not been through this before. We do not know the answer. It's okay. It's okay to say that. I think a number of things. I think right away, the first I would say, and I'm speaking just from my personal lived experience here as a staff member in our department, right? Yes, a leader, part of this whole experience is just my daily life too. And and how many hours am I on Zoom? And how many hours am I working? And what are my stressors and all of those pieces? One, the city of San Francisco went very rapidly into a shelter-in-place model. I don't know what the variation on that was around the country, but we were very quick to adopt that. And then we spent, I would say, about a good four months to five months in acute response mode. That was gearing up all of our clinicians for surges in the population of COVID diagnoses, shifting look what happens to research labs that are very vibrant and thriving when we don't need or want anyone on campus. So many logistical pieces in terms of research and clinical care, and then the educational pieces, but we have all these residents and fellows and we're shipping people and everyone possible off campus. Uh, how do we maintain their educational programs with so many changes to their clinical rotations and uncertainties about hours and just all of the things. And so for four to five months, I feel like we were just in problem solving mode, very distinct, having been in healthcare for a couple of decades myself, a very distinct sort of healthcare response to high alert, we're going to go and we're going to solve problems and we're going to fix things and we're going to figure it out. And I was already worried about burnout within the first couple of weeks because I thought this is not very sustainable. (laughs) And by the end of that four or five months, what I could see was all of our senior leadership team, especially, and all of our division managers, everyone just, you could just see the fatigue in everyone's eyes. And that's when we really started to say, all right, let's start focusing on the future now. So what do we really want this to look like? What is really happening here? So we started just having a lot of conversations with people. We created basically an internal telework task force made up of department leaders to start looking at what are the issues we're facing? What are the resource needs the department should be putting forward? We have a very high autonomy approach to governance within our department. We look at our central team as supporting all of the work of our divisions and our divisions we try to really encourage to be very autonomous in how they want to run their units and their businesses, which makes a lot of sense at our size. So it's not a very proscriptive leadership model at the core department level of the chair's office. But really, we brought people together. We started asking, what are the experiences? What do people really need? What are the actual concerns? 
And it wasn't really terribly surprising. People are like, I'm worried about the mental health of my people. I'm worried about overwork, or I'm worried simultaneously about underworking and underperforming. How do we know work is getting done? I'm not really sure. We can't see our people. We don't gather together. All of the things that were affecting so many of us across many institutions and teams. We didn't necessarily find anything surprising, but we just really quickly started looking at how do we put the brakes on this what are the really big ticket items we can solve right away? And it was like, why are we on Zoom for eight hours a day? Why are we back to back with everything? And started just making sure that we could do things, simple things like saying, why don't we just start every meeting 10 minutes late for an hour long more meeting or five minutes late if it's 30 minutes or less? This is an academic institution. An academic hour is 50 minutes. <laughs> and boy, it turns out in Outlook, you can actually set parameters that automatically schedule every meeting on your calendar to begin five or 10 minutes late or to end five or 10 minutes early. So just quickly adopting things like that. We had one division chief who just really early on just decided he'd already been experimenting with this and it became so pre-pandemic, but experimenting with putting very important bumpers around email times and had a simple tagline added to his signature saying, I may respond at odd hours, but you don't need to. You don't need to respond at two in the morning or whatever, that kind of sentiment. Basically, I'm trying to observe good boundaries around email etiquette and communication. And those kind of very simple practices where we could try to communicate with people, oh, we can go back to a certain sense of normality, even though we have so many needs going on in so many homes. Is it ever going to be all a synchronous team from eight to five? five days a week from a virtual perspective, obviously we learned early on that couldn't work for people. People were sheltering in place with children or aging parents or spouses or partners with also full-time jobs and no spaces or facilities to easily do that or trouble with internet. So there were all kinds of things to immediately say, let's adopt flexibility as a core value in this. We we started looking very early on and what are the high ticket items that are really just causing this to feel like the cadence is too rapid? How can we put some brakes on that, create some space for us to catch our breath, and then look at the deeper pieces like, all right, we've got this task force now, we're going to be needing to produce some guidelines. So let's start with what are our values and what principles are we going to put in place that will guide us as a department in making decisions around how do we want our workers interacting with one another and their jobs? And that really, I think, was the first step, Jacqueline, was just catching our breath and adding mindfulness and intention to our processes and looking for small ways we could, in fact, open up some space for people and calm down. We had so many of our leaders coming to our weekly meetings to check in with each other. And they're like, the volumes of email is just outside of this world. And what do we do with all of this? And I'm like, I'm not really surprised. If I were the everyday staff person in the department who's now working from home and <clears throat> I'm used to being visible to my supervisor in a workspace, my anxiety level about, am I going to be able to keep my job because they are not seeing me working might predispose me to send lots of emails all day long to just subconsciously prove I'm here, I'm engaged. 
it made a lot of sense why some of these behaviors were happening. And those were the behaviors we just tried to really quickly jump in and say, well, hold on. We trust that you are working. We trust you're getting your job done. So it forced us to think about, when you asked about measurement, it forced us to think about what were we really doing about productivity measurement beforehand, very honestly. And seeing someone in a workspace, was that really a measure? We could see them at their desk or in front of their computer and mentally we check a box. Oh, someone's here, they're engaged, they're working. But of course we know that's all just a visual facade. We have no idea what is really happening and how engaged a person is at a given moment, just because we see them in a space. So moving toward what is meaningful. Oh, we have project deadlines. Okay. There are time-sensitive tasks. Are those being done? Are we seeing our team members on a regular enough cadence, even virtually, that we know who they are and what's happening with them. Are one-to-one meetings being utilized or other team meetings being utilized well? What kind of meetings do we need? How frequently? And so those all became areas of rapid exploration. That's great. And I love some of these examples because, again, I'm loving always reading books around this topic and how the future works is another new one I've been exploring. And it's exactly that what were our measures of productivity and what were they really? And the irony too, that somebody's trying to prove that they're being productive by being present. And that presenteeism is then making somebody else unable to do their job because their inbox is flooded. That's why we need a different model. I thought it was really interesting where you talked about the values. I think it's great that you have that value of flexibility in there. And I really appreciated your model of saying person, environment, health. And again, I think that's so important that people hear that third piece, the environment too, part of this. But I also try in my work to have a real simple guide in some ways, which is flexibility, focus, fairness, and purpose. Because again, when we're talking about so many different things that companies can do, it gets overwhelming. So I feel like guiding principles for me are those four things, which have really come from what are the things that lead to burnout? And so therefore, what are some of these solutions that we can have in there? So again, lack of autonomy leads to burnout, lack of fairness leads to burnout, lack of focus leads to burnout, and lack of purpose leads to burnout. So that that's why I have those as guiding principles. But I think one of the things that's very difficult for organizations is to operationalize those values and actually communicate them with daily behaviors that make a difference. And I agree with the leader saying, sometimes I work odd hours, you don't have to do that. And I felt like at first that was an okay message to be giving. But I think now it's not so great because it's basically saying you do limits on you, but I will have no limits on me. And I think that style of leadership also has to change. And that's where, again, if there are agreed upon collaborative hours, then you collaborate in those hours and no one has to make excuses for working outside of them or whatever. It also then provides us more direction in, okay, this is the time we all expect to be collaborating and this is the time we don't. And you don't have to make excuses for not sitting in that time. These are recommendations very much, as I say, from how the future works about what companies are doing. But I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you actually are operationalizing some of these principles every day. 
I really appreciate that. And I think that there have been like, in particular, the example of, of different email lines, just creating certain hygiene around communications. There've just been so many different variations on that people have experimented with across the board. I think it's been a really lively and it's an ongoing conversation as well. And I agree with you. I feel like we really need as leaders to try and model the behaviors that we really want people to adopt. And for me, I've always been this. When I interviewed for my job, I was very blunt with the leader who would be my supervisor in asking about culture and saying, this is clearly a really high achieving institution. And this is not my first rodeo, as they say. And at nearly 50 years old at the time of my hire, I was like, so help me understand culturally, is this the kind of place where there's going to be an expectation of we'll email people back at all hours of the evenings or the weekends, et cetera. Because if that is the case, I respect that for your organization, but that's not how I work. I won't do that. (laughs) And I've maintained those boundaries the whole time. Very rarely, unless there's been an acute need, have I personally ever done that. I just am not interested in working outside of those set hours because I don't want other folks around me, particularly those who are earlier in their careers or et cetera, maybe have more vulnerability around the workplace than do I to feel like that's required of them. It's just not okay for me. So yeah, other pieces that we've done to really operationalize that. I think just focusing on the human-centered nature of our work, the equity and the fairness pieces, the flexibility pieces, and also even the transparency pieces was one of our values going into this, that we really wanted to have a principle and a value around transparency and communication. So we're all on the same page and we're all working together toward a similar goal. So those kinds of pieces, they looked like lots of experimentation. And all of our division managers worked with I would have to say, by and large, they worked on a by-person model, the person-by-person in their organizations to try to understand the individual needs of people, to have really authentic and honest conversations about how work and life were going, what supports did people really need. These very real human conversations was probably the most prevalent intervention that happened. And to the credit of all of our leaders, we didn't say, go do this thing. They just did that. That's how they operate, the kind of people they are. And I think our divisions had a lot of ability to really know pretty quickly what was going on with people and how their team was doing and those who might be struggling, what might some of those needs be, or to try to stay closer to those folks. For the first year of the pandemic, honestly, within even the first maybe month and a half, I launched a really robust program of webinars for staff. Many of them reached out to the whole department, but a lot of them were very staffs focused. And these were on topics like working effectively remotely. What does that really look like for you? We did mental health programming around wellness, anxiety, just general well-being. We brought in a number of guest speakers who talked about things. We brought in K through 12 education specialists who sat with us and did a webinar on how do I as a parent deal with my school-aged children at home from the perspective of their learning. I've got all this anxiety, plus I'm working, and can somebody help us understand what's really going to happen with my kids and what are some 
strategies I can use. So we tried to be very focused on what people's needs were. We launched, like many organizations, we launched a resource page for our people right away. That happened within just a few weeks. And we collated resources, but they were not the typical COVID resources of here's the health page and here's where you learn about hygiene and those kinds of pieces were there. But we called ours a life continuity resource page. And so we really holistically looked at what do families who are employed here at our department, regardless of their role, what do the families need? And so we curated really high quality resources around all of those holistic aspects of their lives, relationships, fostering relationships in their families, the resilience, dealing with children and anxiety, what are aging parent or are those with chronic illness, what are their needs, accessibility, all kinds of things. It was pretty robust. So there were a few things that launched us off. And it also occurred to me that we had an opportunity with this, with 3000 people in a department, you can imagine it is really hard to feel like that community does share a particular identity and a commonality because historically we would never ever all be in one place. That wouldn't even be really physically possible without renting a stadium and doing something together. So you can imagine that even in the pre days, there were not gatherings that really allowed for all of us to be together. And so we took advantage of the fact that we had this virtual environment to work in and we did some things we had never done before. So I think this was not even three months into the pandemic, we did a department-wide poetry contest and a magazine. And we had 150 or something entries from physicians and researchers and staff leaders and trainees and turned out this robust and cathartic piece of artwork and literature that was astounding. And the feedback from people, you're reading through this and you could just see people processing through all of their fears and their hopes. And it was really profoundly beautiful. So much so that we did an addition for each of the three COVID years. We've now retired it. But over those years, we collected hundreds and hundreds of the poetry from just amazing human beings kind of processing through things. And those included all of the aspects we were living through, not just the healthcare aspects, but all kinds of things around racial equity and um, all of the things we were living through contemporarily were just really being represented in those kinds of works of art. And then later in the year, we did another one where we asked, uh, and it was the COVID cooking era, and we were all doing British Bake Off, and we were all having casserole nights and reminding us of our comfort foods of family. So we created a food blog and we did the same thing, kind of a contest. And we had people generate, not just sending us recipes or photographs, but what's the story of this dish? Why is that important to you? What are the memories around that? And so it really became a sharing of cultures. It was incredibly diverse, which was fantastic, but also really touching in a different way. And we had all of these wonderful recipes and this beautiful blog emerged around that. So we looked for ways to bring people together in a sense of community. We couldn't gather for a meal, but we could share some recipes with each other and tell stories. So we tried to find ways to leverage what was unique about our situation. And then I think another very practical thing that started to emerge was, what do we do with meetings now? This is so awkward looking at each other on a screen and whether my team is five people or 60 people, it just felt really 
foreign and it was very transactional. It was very, here's information and what are your updates? And those of us who were in a position to just be really experimental right away started really redefining what a, a weekly team meeting looked like. And so we started to carve out that there are maybe some different types of meetings and we need to think about what we're doing with them. And so I think many units traditionally would have a weekly or a bi-weekly staff meeting, or maybe a monthly staff meeting, something like that. And it was very transactional and there were updates and maybe there was snacks and there was a bit of social time as well. But then really trying to say, maybe one thing you could do for your team is to move to a huddle model where there's one or maybe more weekly huddles. And those huddles are not transactional, but they're relational. And you can actually think about this as people development as well, because you can be doing sort of fun social things virtually together and learn about one another in new ways, but it can be staff led. You as the division manager or the supervisor of the team don't need to always come with the program. You can pair people up and say, next week's huddle, you're on deck, bring us a topic, show us a video, lead a discussion, lead an activity, whatever it was. And started to really reinvent how we were interacting with one another in meaningful ways. That really, I think, for those teams who really kind of leaned into that, found that to be really beneficial. And then as we have transitioned away from the acute nature of the pandemic into a more hybrid, oh, we can gather in smaller groups increasingly or outdoors or now at a certain point indoors, et cetera. As we followed those pieces, we also had the thought that people really need to connect. We can't always bring them all together in one location. And also we learned burdensome, right? People are like, wow, I've spent, prior to the pandemic, I'd spend an hour to three hours commuting every day. And everyone's quality of life improved when that went away <laughs> for those who were working remotely, but those who were not working remotely and were on site and still were carrying that burden still felt disconnected, right, from others in their lives and felt their experience was, as all of us, it was unique and it was challenging no matter where you were. And it didn't make sense maybe fully to try and have the kinds of gatherings we did in the past where you bring your whole team together for X thing. So we started thinking about more of a meetup model where we looked for staff and faculty sponsors across the department who would be willing to host a small event for any member of the department, didn't matter what their role was, but that it would be in their local neighborhood. And it could be anything. It could be, I live in the Castro and the Mission, and there's been all of this mural art exploded in the pandemic. And so I want to take people on a walking tour. We can maybe have 10 or 15 people because we're outdoors and anybody can sign up for that. And one of our faculty is leading it because they're an authority in local art, something like that. And another group would say, I'm just going to host a dinner party at a restaurant that I know has a big patio and we can have 10 people show up and it'll be in the East Bay this time, et cetera. So now it's become a very robust program, very popular. We have our clinician faculty, our research faculty. We have staff across all different roles. Sometimes our trainees are involved in these. So people can just gather together. They may work for entirely different divisions and have entirely different roles, but they're geographically close to one another. And so relationships have emerged and people feeling more connected to the department has happened. That is not something that we ever would have thought of 
prior to all of this. I've been really recently a fan of Priya Parker's The Art of Gathering. And I didn't know we were doing this at the time. But now that I've read her book, I'm like, oh my gosh, we have been totally doing this. We've been really reinventing what gathering means and how do we use that? And we bring these people together for these social events. I think the program's called Dominoes. It's like the Department of Medicine in the neighborhood kind of a thing. And networking opportunities, informal networking opportunities. I never would have done that before. And it's just been really wonderful. It's a program that's now grown. Another department has joined us, the Department of Surgery. That's fascinating. And we're a smaller department. Could we maybe join in on that with you? We've really just started to rethink all of these dimensions Jacqueline, of what does it mean to be in our workplace? How do we gather? How do we meet? What are we doing with that time? And what I have seen is that the amount of time people spend interacting from a humanistic social perspective in the context of their work teams, whether it's online or in a little geographical on-site spontaneous social meeting, is that social time has gone up. So these meetings are less business. But the connectivity, it's had exactly the effect we want. People are more connected. They feel more like they have a department level identity. That's really lovely to see that people really seem to enjoy one another. So I don't know, there's just a number of things, I think, and probably many examples I'm leaving out, but we've really tried to look at it very holistically and from a number of different angles, from everything from the arts in their role in healing and connectivity to food, to gatherings, to weekly meetings, to how we recognize one another and a number of new rituals have emerged. But you had asked earlier, you're like, what have been, what are some of the outcomes? I have to say the first year the pandemic hit, it happened at a time where normally we would have been doing our annual staff survey and UCSF uses the Gallup engagement survey, kind of a very widely used survey. We skipped it that year. (laughs) We were all like, not only is this a terrible time and we're not going to be successful getting a lot of feedback, but I don't know that this is going to be terribly helpful feedback at this point. It's just too much chaos because we usually do the survey in April and we had just moved to shelter in place. So we did miss a year. However, when we did it the following year, we've now done two cycles since that year gap. And both of those years, our department has seen gains in overall engagement that are significant. And that was really startling and delightful. And in the dimensions of the Gallup tool, the things that really jumped were staff saying, someone on my team genuinely cares about me. That just is a very high level item. And someone at work has talked with me about my progress and has had a conversation with me about my development. So it just really reflected that our supervisors, our managers, our chiefs, et cetera, it really just showed exactly what we thought was happening. People were really the center of this. It was not transactional. It was relational. And that has made a huge difference in the lives of our staff. So for us to have gains in engagement in not just this idea of productivity, the productivity has been exactly there. In fact, we're probably more productive than we were prior because we've cut out for many people a lot of unnecessary commuting. People have more time to do some deeper work at times. The flexibility has really kicked in and they're finding ways to have a balance with their lives that's really helpful. For our 
folks who have been in labs or in clinical who have not ever worked remotely, the acuity of the pandemic has gone down. More of our operations have normalized. There's more support on site, more people to interact with. Things are easing there a little bit. But of course, there are some very deep wounds for many people and lots of folks who are still working through that. And um, this last survey we did, as I mentioned, our engagement scores went up a second year in a row, surprisingly, after all of this fatigue, you would think, especially in academic medicine or healthcare in general. So engagement scores going up and that feeling of caring and this positive culture going up. And yet we asked a custom question for the first time, which was about burnout. And about 27% of our people are responding that they're feeling burned out either always or often. And about 50% were sometime, about the other 20 three or whatever percent that is, not really very often or never. I think that 50% there at sometimes seems pretty standard for what a lot of people are experiencing. But of course, my heart goes to the 27% who are very often or always. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So we still have work to do to put some brakes on and keep things moving forward for people in a positive way. But I think we're, I think we're getting there. That's fantastic. And all those examples, they're examples of one-to-ones. It's so important. They're examples of group and culture. It's such a challenge because one size doesn't fit all. You do have to pay attention to individual personal needs, but you also then have to notice, oh, these needs are common and therefore let's do something more at a systems level to respond to this. I think that's really hard to go back and forth between those levels and to be able to take the individual and elevate it because I think that's what's so important actually for managers to be able to do is to elevate those individual needs into systems level changes as well. Yeah, that's exactly right because these pieces of burnout that you're really focusing on and I love your work actually obviously we've had some other conversations at different times and I'm such a fan of this focus because bringing some intelligence to this and really helping us figure that out. It truly is critical because this is not just, you know, about, gosh, do I feel satisfied at work, right? This can be for people a life or death situation, right? And so many people are at risk for horrifying health outcomes. And so really figuring out what do we do? There are things that in any workplace or institution we have control over and and that we don't. And those systems level pieces, we look at ourselves as a department. I think we're really lucky in that because of our size and because of the prominence of our faculty and being the leaders that we are, a lot of other Schools and departments within UCSF look to us at times for what are examples. My supervisor is really very innovative. I would say innovation is probably her greatest strength. Maria Novalero, and she's the, the associate chair for administration for this huge department. So she has a lot on her shoulders and she's always been very innovation driven. She's always looking at what are these redundant and difficult tasks that everybody is facing and how do we systematize those? How do we leverage technology? It always seems we're creating a new portal with a new software program that makes a system better for people. Like for example, the faculty onboarding, as you can imagine, especially in medicine is so complicated. It takes months and months to search for, 
find, extend an offer, get someone credentialed, even if they've been a physician for 25, 30 years, getting them credentialed maybe in a new state, who knows what's going to happen. It just takes so much work. And the administrative burden of that is really high. And that's the kind of thing where if you have a very robust division where you're hiring a lot of faculty every year, that alone can just lead to a certain degree of burnout. So creating a system where this could all be automated, customized to your unit's level so that once it's set up, there's a dashboard, it sends automated reminders, people are moving through a system, it makes it easier for you. That's the kind of thing we have the resources and the foresight to do in the department. And that innovation bent was already there. I think in the pandemic, it's really ramped up. Like, how can we do more of that? And now we're looking at very granular levels around that. One of the most popular webinars I did for staff during the pandemic kind of surprised me because we had a really large department level a virtual event. It required me sending out some gift cards to several hundred people at the end of the day. And of course, I just used a mail merge process for that. And I started getting emails from, how did you send out all hundreds of, that must've taken you weeks to send out all of those emails. You batch process it, you use a mail merge and they're like, oh my gosh, what is that? This is a fundamental feature built into software. And I am not a high level computer user, but I'm just a little bit of an older bird where, you know, like in high school, when we had computer classes and they were the first generation that had computer classes in high school, and there was a DOS program to teach you how to do a batch process that would send a bunch of stuff that was still lingering in my mind from 35 years ago. So just had a webinar and we recorded it on how to send mass emails that were highly customized. And I got responses from people around, you have no idea. Every year I spend 80 hours on this project and this has completely eliminated all of that. And there's another area then where we just took an acute period of possible burnout and got rid of it, right? Innovation, technology use, bringing people together, sharing ideas, community development, catharsis, arts, literature, whatever it is that we can do to bring people together and help them have a better experience is what's working. And I just keep looking for how do I get to do more of that? How do I focus on that? For me, that's really high order thinking for my role. How do we identify those opportunities and really authentically meet them? When I saw the burnout data, I was not surprised, but it did make it very real for me. And what I started looking at was, okay, we have a lot of systems-oriented thinking. We are trying to lessen, I call systems overhead, <laughs> the overhead of sometimes systems that are so big that they are just challenging and clunky, and we really have no ability to affect a change for some of those. But what we can do is, uh, once again, from a very person-centered perspective, we can use the tools we have through UCSF already and really leverage them. But like one of them, for example, because we use the Gallup organization for our survey is the Gallup product is the Clifton Strengths Finder, right? So we can look at an individual, put them through a well-regarded self-assessment measure to help them identify from that particular tool's mindset, 34 strengths in rank order. About 16% of staff at UCSF at large have actually done that. And one thing we can do to really help our people continue to know we're interested in their development, we genuinely want them progressing and finding that next promotion and staying with us long-term and finding workplace satisfaction is to really help them understand themselves at an individual level from that perspective 
And if they're feeling areas of burnout, that gives us something right away to have a conversation around. Let's look at alignment. Let's look at alignment between your strengths and those things that are even on the lower end, right? Those last two or three items that are the least strong of that characteristic set and really look at your job and your tasks and see if there is alignment or there's opportunities for maybe realignment or different approaches that would help lessen that burnout burden. And then of course, then there's that meta level of the supervisor, staff, and whole team. How do we get that whole team in a place using this tool and this language where they're really seeing the benefit of the diversity of their teams in terms of strengths and leveraging those well gives the supervisors and the managers something to look at and go, oh, wow, I could do some fine tuning here. Maybe we could shift around some of these tasks, or maybe we could use a different approach for these tasks based on the strengths phenotype of, of my team and elevate the work there, right? That's my big effort for the next year. I started this a few months ago now. By the end of this year, we'll have about 33% of our staff through it. By the end of next year, my hope is we'll have near 100% of our staff through it. And not just a one and done at the individual level, but that the team supervisors and managers are getting ongoing support from me. And how do you keep engaging with this tool and utilizing it to your best advantage. And I was unfamiliar with the tool before coming to UCSF. I was a lot more familiar with, you know, many of the other kinds of like personality testing and Myers-Briggs and Enneagram and all of those kinds of pieces. But I have to say, I've really liked using this tool because it's much less abstract for people. When I think about Myers-Briggs, which I actually love and really resonate, that sort of theory scholar mind of mine, I love that kind of stuff as a nerdy PhD guy who always studied qualitative work and relationships and all of those kinds of pieces. But it's not always very accessible for a lot of people. Well, it's great that I have these four letters, but I don't really know what does that mean for my everyday work? Whereas this particular tool lays out some very concrete things that people do really well and how to start building on that. So I guess that's the one thing I would add is what are we doing next? How are we going to really focus on this burnout? We've already got the systems things in places of that mindset around innovation and lessening systems overhead or process overhead. But yeah, on the individual level right now in my role, I'm really trying to focus on helping people identify their strengths and approach their work from a strength-based perspective. And I'm really hoping that will pay off as the years go down the line here, that people will really have had a meaningful learning experience with that. Not just, oh, we've checked a box and here's your development for the year, but people are really moving into reflective mode and supervisors are learning how to take that information and do something really custom with it for their teams. And yeah, I, I just feel this is such a brag session on the Department of Medicine, but I'm so proud of the work we have done. I am so proud of our leaders, so proud of all of our staff, all of our trainees who've made it through a difficult period. And it's really wonderful to see that magic happen. And I just hope we can sustain it and keep it going. Thanks so much for listening today. I hope the podcast brings you fresh ideas, renewed confidence and energy to keep leading change. If you need a partner in these efforts, I can help you effectively build a thriving workplace culture for all. I'll help you overcome the real barriers to change you face every day 
and help you lead real change with evidence-based solutions. In particular, I want to work with passionate leaders who have tried and failed. Because I know you have what it takes and your experience will help you clearly recognize the difference I can make. For a free consultation today, please visit my website at www.leading-real-change.com. That's www.leadingrealchange.com. Control, you're a fighter. Push the limits and see it. You're already there. Told you we going higher. Ain't no stopping us. We're going in for the win. And we're gonna celebrate. Then we're gonna do it all over again. And we're gonna rock this place. Cause this is our day. We're gonna do it all.